HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Regional Access. Regional Access is a regional distributor committed to creating sustainable economies throughout the Northeast. For more information, visit regionalaccess.net. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this frigid January morning. Yeah, we've been having some pretty cold weather here in the Northeast. But still, we open the refrigerator every day, at least twice a day. And come on, you know you've done it. You open the refrigerator, you stare at the contents. Hmm, what's there to eat? Or what should I make for dinner? Well wasn't always that way because we didn't always have a refrigerator we could open. And today, my guest is here to tell us all about when that changed and how and why. He is Jonathan Reese, who is professor of history at Colorado State University, Pueblo. And Jonathan has published a new book called Refrigeration Nation. Fascinating book. Welcome, Jonathan. Oh, welcome, Linda. Uh, Jonathan, I, I have to say I love how you open... you. Oh, it started the book with a quote from Francis Bacon in 1624. And if anyone has read him, you know that he, his writing is always in this wonderful verse. And it just sort of set the tone for everything. And I'm going to read it right now. The producing of cold is a thing very worthy the Inquisition. For heat and cold are nature's two hands by which we chiefly worketh. And heat we have in readiness, but for cold... We must stay till it cometh. <laughs> the Iceman cometh. Well, that's another whole other story. That's a, another pun that comes up later in the <laughs> right. book. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, it's, and there are all kinds of fascinating, wonderful things that you, we could say, and you did say. Um, but it is true. I mean, refri- we, we have become so dependent on our refrigerators, and nothing brings that more to mind than when there's a, a disaster, a power outage. And, in fact, you wrote a wonderful article in The Atlantic, about uh, the effects of Katrina and the, and the power outages and the and, and all the refrigerators, discarded refrigerators. That was more on why our refrigerators are so big. But yeah, uh, tell me what, why refrigeration? What what inspired you to write about refrigeration? 
Well, I can tell you that my, my dissertation was on the steel industry. And when I was working at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, I used to hang out on the fourth floor of the engineering library where they had all of these old trade journals about the steel industry. And when you came up out of the elevator, right about eye shot, there was a journal called Ice and Refrigeration. And I started thumbing through that one day when I was bored. And the steel industry is something that historians have really touched on a lot over the last few decades. But nobody had touched the ice and refrigeration industries. And I started reading the journal, and I was completely hooked. Hmm. It was this lost world that nobody had ever heard about, where they were creating these really elaborate machines in order to create cold. And that technology is similar to what we have today, but it's so much better now. And I wanted to try to do a book to recreate that lost world and sort of explain the change over time from just harvesting ice on New England lakes in the early 19th century to having ice on demand in our homes like right. we have now. Of course, the, I mean, the ice industry, was uh, that is a wonderful story, too. And, yeah. you know, before we had our refrigerators, you know, I read an, uh, an appalling, uh, not appalling, but an amazing um, statistic, and that is that 70% of all of America's food is refrigerated at some point between farm and table. And, of course, that's more than just our refrigerators, but we'll get into that in a little while. Yeah. But we've i mean there have been methods of preservation early preservation prior to refrigeration and a lot of it as you say was ice but right. know, people dug holes in the ground and there was the ice industry but tell us a little bit about the those earlier methods before we got to this these machines there's um there's salting there's drying there's potting there's all sorts of very primitive methods the you know, this pickling for instance uh, many of which we still use today for purposes of taste I think what you mean is what do you do in order to keep something cold without mm-hmm. mechanical refrigeration? Right. And you, and you use an icebox. Um, and we use the term icebox and refrigerator interchangeably. But the original icebox is nothing but a box with ice in it. And then the ice keeps the um, whatever food you want to keep cold cold. And the iceman would show up at your door every day or maybe every other day and give you a new block of ice. Mm-hmm. Anyone who goes to antique shows or yeah. maybe you know has somebody who's a collector, you've seen these ice boxes, and many of them, the the American early American oak ones were quite beautiful too. Uh, gorgeous, yeah. gorgeous stuff. But even even those who were um, of you know a, a poorer economic means could have a box with a chunk of ice in it. So it was it wasn't really a class separation thing. There are people in um, the poor neighborhoods of New York City who would get ice from the Iceman, wrap it in a blanket, and keep it in their bathtub so huh. that they can have cold drinks. Yeah, ice is something that all classes were interested in, even if all classes weren't able to afford it. Uh, on the ice industry, I mean, that that was more than just, you know, the Iceman coming from the Great Lakes here. I mean, that grew to be an international business for some people, right? Uh, absolutely. Um, there's really two kinds of... Actually, there's one kind of ice that's harvested in the 19th century, but it's put to two different uses. One is for, you know, individual consumption, stick it in your glass, have a cold drink. And the other is to keep other foods cold. So you would put it in a railway car so that the beef slaughtered in Chicago can make it from Chicago to the East Coast, for instance. Mm -hmm. So it's both part of the infrastructure and it's a product to be consumed by itself. 
Right. Well, that brings me to to getting on to development of the mechanical refrigerator. In your book, you talk a lot about um, the cold chain and yeah. inventing the cold chain. Uh, and in fact, you broke it up into different stages. Explain for our listeners what you mean by the cold chain. Well, a cold chain is like a food chain. We all know the food chain. The food is produced in one place. It's transported and consumed in another. A cold chain is a kind of food chain that's specifically created for perishable food. So the cold chain begins when you can produce cold somehow. The thing that is being shipped down the cold chain, there has to be some kind of way to preserve it at every step during its transportation and there has to be something to preserve the food where it's being consumed. And so the cold chain really develops over about a 120-year period from when we can first start to cut ice off lakes uh, so that we can control the cold until really mechanical refrigeration is reliable enough that it can keep something cold uh, even on a long journey on a railway car, which is really the last part of the cold chain to be filled in. And if you want to know what my book is about, if you want to cover all the different subjects, it's sort of about the development of that cold chain and then sort of its implications now that it's essentially done. Hmm. Well, when um, as I read that statistic about 70% of America's food is refrigerated at some point between farm and table, that refers then also to, you know, as you said, the railroad cars, right. uh, refrigerated trucks, you know. Absolutely. Warehouses, right? <laughs> Before yeah, or, or the warehouses. And it, it's complicated because there's foods that are highly perishable, um, like, you know, ice cream, that you have to have a whole new cold chain that can keep something um, frozen for a long period of time. And then there's a food like bananas, and re- they'll be refrigerated not because they have to be, but if you ship them green from the tropics and you refrigerate them at least a little bit, more of them are going to survive the trip than there would without refrigeration. Hmm, interesting. Well, so you mentioned bananas. Um, that refrigeration, you mentioned, changed the way that um, America and the world ate forever. Yes. Uh, well, let's get, on to the, let's get on to the development of this. And wh- why did it take so long for us to figure this out? So you want to talk about the Riff. development of the culture in the stages? <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, well, I mean, right. we can do this. We can do this a, a whole bunch of different ways. Um, I mean, I sort of start in the early 19th century when people cut ice. Well, specifically, a guy named Frederick Tudor is the pioneer. Cuts ice off New England ponds and, and streams, and uses it to well, mostly to, sh- to ship ice itself to the tropics so that people in the Caribbean or even people as far away as India can have cold drinks. And that's the real start of the industry. Nobody had quite figured out how to create cold where cold isn't there at that point in time, just you know, using and uh, sort of pinpointing where the cold is going to be using what nature provided was sort of the beginning of that industry. That got more efficient over the course of the 19th century, and everybody, all over, everybody who's interested in refrigeration all over the world realized that mechanical refrigeration would be a wonderful thing. You know, if we didn't need to rely on winter in the north in order to have cold that we could utilize for our own purposes, then it would be both really useful for humanity and an absolute gold mine. 
but there are so many different ways to do mechanical refrigeration, and it's very difficult to make it practical. The first mechanical refrigerating machines weigh about five tons. Hmm. They're actually used in, in large part to, to make ice <laughs> as opposed to, uh, to, to keep things cold, and that takes you know, decades to perfect. So the ice industry, uh, cutting stuff off ponds, persists longer than you would imagine because it's just simply much cheaper than somebody buying one of these great big machines. And so that, that's if you want to know why the delay is coming in, it's because making it reliable, making it cost-effective takes so long. Uh, well, when did we... Um, I know the first time that, that when you mentioned the first mechanical or... Um, cooling machine or a refrigerator mm-hmm. um, was pretty much a, lo- a long time before it hit the consumers as yeah. you know for consumer use so tell yeah. me who, who do we credit with that the refrigerator is one of those machines that you can't credit anybody individually there are scientists and inventors working all over the world and they're working sort of in different directions sometimes so the kinds of refrigeration that you see in uh, England, for instance, is, is more than a little different than the kinds of refrigerators that get used in the United States. So the first people are working on this compression system, and they're creating these big five-ton machines in the 19th century. The first ones pop up in the United States right around the Civil War years, and you have maybe a few hundred of them, uh, mostly in large cities, uh, around the United States right about, about the turn of the century. The personal mechanical refrigerating machine, the electric household refrigerator, um, really the first efficient one debuts around 1915, and it grows out of a whole different industrial tradition because the people who made the big five-ton machines didn't think that they could mass-produce what they did. So the people who are working on the household machines are the same people behind General Motors, for instance. Um, Frigidaire is, uh, is a division of General Electric. <laughs> and mm. so they, they have to, they use sort of a similar concept. It's called compression refrigeration. So both the five-ton machines and the electric household refrigerators work on the uh, compression refrigeration cycle, but they needed a different refrigerant. They needed a different business plan, and that really delays the outset of the home refrigerator which is something else that everybody was working on inventing for 30 years before it finally hit. Hmm. So it wasn't, it wasn't an economic battle of uh, somebody tabling this invention while no, the ice industry continued? No, no, no continued. Nobody, nobody was saying, we have to stop this or our business will be destroyed. <laughs> right. It's just a, it was a very difficult machine to perfect. And it was a difficult machine to find a market for because usually with a new invention, um, it's going to come in, like the computer, it's going to come in in its first iteration as being really expensive. So the first people who bought electric household refrigerators were the rich. And it doesn't, I, I even know this, this is in the book, the majority of Americans do not have a household electric household refrigerator until World War II. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's interesting because, um, as I mentioned, you, you wrote... Um, an article, an excerpt from the book, basically, um, for The Atlantic and Why Are Americans' Refrigerators So Big? Um, so everyone gets these refrigerators, but then it's really not, uh, you know, I don't think it's American, you know, it's not American wanting, oh, bigger is better, 
yes, bigger is better in, in many ways for, for Americans. But, you know, it was all about the growth and the sprawl of, of populations in suburban areas. I mean, shopping, you know, they didn't have the markets. Uh, so supermarkets came along. You had to shop a little more efficiently, right, like once a week. So, you know, putting them in a, a big refri- putting all your food in a big refrigerator, I guess, was the way to keep it. It's a, it's a cultural thing, yeah. and I think it's not exclusively the fault of the people who sell refrigerators, but they will market to you, starting in World War II, that one of the reasons you should get rid of your old refrigerator and get a new one is because the new ones are bigger, and they have more volume, yet they take up the same amount of space. Mm-hmm. And refrigerators last a really long time. Speaking of antique shows, you can still find some of the early, late 1920s refrigerators running uh, if somebody who owns them really knows their way around a refrigerator. And a 20s refrigerator and uh, a refrigerator from today do the same thing. They keep food cold, and they can keep food cold very effectively. And so the people need to convince you that your old refrigerator is obsolete and you need to buy a new one. And I've seen so many of the ads from the 40s and 50s. Marketing is one. This kind of marketing, marketing towards size, is really the the best pitch they have. Hmm. Even though your old refrigerator works fine, and you'll probably just move it to the basement and keep sodas down there, they're all they're fine with that. They just want you to buy a new one. Of course, maybe not as energy efficient as as today's refrigerators, right? Uh, that that's true. Yeah. Uh, that that is true. Which is one of the downsides of of this whole refrigerator craze. I mean, it's not the best thing for our environment. You know, it's complicated. I certainly agree with you that that one should not have a refrigerator and not worry, let's put this a little differently, that one should worry about the energy efficiency of your refrigerator. But refrigeration uh, keeps things from spoiling. And having food that's produced and spoiling is just as harmful to the environment as refrigerating food, keeping it fresh, I think you can argue that it can be much worse. If we got rid of all of our refrigerators tomorrow, all the stuff that would rot in the fields would have a much worse effect on the food that's decaying, creating the same kind of greenhouse gases that the energy used to run your refrigerator uh, creates, and that would be an equal problem. I think the problem is not that food miles are an irrelevant concept, but only they need to be balanced off other things. Right, right. That's, that is a very good point. And um, it brings me back to the point where you mentioned that it changed the way that America and the world ate forever. And you just mentioned food from you know that's harvested can be kept longer. Right. Um, also, we can eat food from further away and more exotic foods. And right. <laughs> Right, I mean, there are two ways to get food out of season. One is you take some stuff that's grown in your area and you refrigerate it uh, so that it'll be available in winter when it wouldn't be coming up ordinarily. Or during winter, thanks to refrigeration, we can get all of our fresh fruits and vegetables from California or Mexico. Mm-hmm. And refrigeration uh, makes both of those things happen. And the people who first benefited from that found that to be absolutely amazing and then it sort of fades into the background very quickly well i want to talk a little bit more about the taste and um and also about frozen food when we come back we're going to take a short break so when we come back let's talk about that 
You are listening to Four of Seven by Jack Inslee on the Heritage Radio Network dot org. Today's program is brought to you by Regional Access. Regional Access is a regional distributor committed to creating sustainable economies throughout the Northeast. This community-oriented company was built on a vision of providing ecologically responsible and ethically produced food to area consumers. During a typical week at the Regional Access warehouse, they help move thousands of pounds of natural and grass-fed meat, gallons of farm-fresh dairy, and tons of organic and specialty foods from producer to market. Having been in the distribution business for almost 25 years, Regional Access's experience and knowledge make them uniquely equipped to build out their region's food web. Up in the Finger Lakes, Regional Access will continue to champion the region's bounty and work toward a sustainable food system for the entire Northeast. For more information, visit regionalaccess.net. Oh, welcome back. I'm talking with Dr. Jonathan Reese from Colorado State University at Pueblo, who's published a book, written a book called Refrigeration Nation. Um, and well, actually, the, the, the whole title is Refrigeration Nation, A History of Ice, Appliances, and Enterprise in America. And Jonathan, um, interesting because we... You know, a lot of talk now is about going sustainably local, being you know shopping locally, but still people forget food needs to be refrigerated, even if you were accessing it on a, from a local farm. Let's say you know it, you can't walk to the farm, so you know refrigeration is still something that's needed, um, even though some people eschew the you know any kind of mechanical processing of the food, but it does have to be kept cold. Um, one, you said it cha- refrigeration has changed the way that that we eat forever. I mean, certainly we have a much more varied diet right. than we did before. Mm-hmm. Um, it, tell me a little bit about what, as far as the economics and um, the in the enterprise in America, what how refrigeration has affected that. Well, the refrigeration industry is is really far-reaching. Um, there are whole technologies, separate technologies, for keeping food fresh all along the cold chain from the point of production to the point of consumption. And so what I do in the book is try to at least quickly profile a few of those businesses and a few of those aspects of the industry. Um, in terms of the economics, um, it, it's a combination of making food more expensive and making it cheaper. It costs more to to uh, get something from far away to market. So sometimes the prices are higher, but at the same time, if more food is on the market because it didn't spoil, that'll also drive prices lower. Mm -hmm. So one of the great, just to give you a for for instance, one of the chapters I'm most proud of, because I don't think any other historian has ever touched it, 
I do a whole chapter on the cold storage industry. And it's one of the great controversies of the progressive era that seems to have been completely forgotten. People said, oh, no, cold storage food is going to be terrible, and it might be unhealthy. And cold storage is a way to manipulate the market because they can hold uh, you know, something like apples off the market and create these false scarcities. When really the people who investigated it saw what would happen is that they would hold some of the food off the market and they'll try to even out the cycle so that the price of an apple is about the same when it's in season and when it's out of season. And gradually, Americans came to accept, actually, it's a little more than gradually. World War I, when they were worried about food shortages, is about the time when Americans decided that maybe the slight taste sacrifice of a cold storage apple or a cold storage egg uh, is worth it in order to be able to have it when they're not in season or when they're not in regular supply. Well, that and and that is interesting. Bringing it back to taste, um, and you mentioned that, of course, everything tastes better fresh than being held. Right. But you know, but it's, you know, what would we do if we couldn't hold it? You know, and uh, yeah. um, I, think, I think I think Americans are are willing to sacrifice taste for access. Right. Yeah. Right. What about frozen the frozen industry? I mean, we had refrigeration. So did freezing. You mentioned um, frozen items, making ice. That came about at the same time. Obviously, one portion could be colder than another of the refrigerator. It, it's a little, a little more complicated than that. The early ice industry tried doing things like shipping apples to India along with the ice, and it, they didn't turn out so well. Um, even meat, the meat can't touch ice or it's going to turn black. The, inside the railroad cars, they have to be physically separated. So ice is first used just as ice for the most part, whether in consumption or in transportation. Frozen food is really a, a whole different industry. We all know the primary person behind that is Clarence Birdseye, <laughs> who reflected the who uh, invented the effective flash freezing uh, technology in the late 1920s. And then there had to be a whole different infrastructure created to get frozen food into the um, supermarket. And that didn't really come in until after World War II. Hmm. So um, after World but the the early refrigerators, did early refrigerators always contain a, um, like a freezing compartment as well? That's a, really, that's a really good question. Early refrigerators are coldest near the cold-producing apparatus. <laughs> and so what happens <laughs> is there'll just be a little teeny part of the refrigerator that's frozen cold. And you could get a little plastic or, or metal ice tray, put some water in, and voila, you would have your own ice <laughs> But it wasn't a, a freezer section. The separate freezer section is something that they've used after World War II when there's frozen food in order to keep in it. Hmm. So we have uh, now we have these huge, actually even freezer drawers right. separate from our refrigerators. I mean, that's, the, the world is... Uh, you know, changing in those appliance modes, but we have definitely become very dependent on our refrigerators. Um, not such a bad thing. But you um, you mentioned at one part that the modern housewife, you, you, actually you said that um, something to the effect that she, the modern housewife comes back from her weekly grocery shopping and unloads all the groceries in the refrigerator and then closes the door. And as she does, she closes the door on a lot of past techniques of food preservation. But 
It's interesting. Yeah, yeah, well, right. right. You, you mentioned that earlier, right? The pickling and drying and canning. But now it seems that things have sort of come full circle, and people are, there. a lot of the younger um, generations are now really embracing some of those older techniques. Yeah, I agree, I agree. The, the whole local food movement, the artisanal food movement, is sort of a rebellion against the industrialized food that refrigeration makes possible. Uh, well, I, mean, I, I grew up in an era where um, all of a sudden the big home freezers, just a, a big, huge freezer, was new and a novelty, and one would have one of these in the garage or in the right. basement, and and then the, the delivery man would come and stock it every so often, you know, get a side of beef or, a, you know, a, not a side of beef, a quarter of a beef and, or a side of a pig, and, and all these frozen vegetables. Oh, I grew up learning to hate the taste of frozen foods. Um, there is a difference between frozen foods and and refrigerated foods but obviously they have it's in the process i would imagine right. uh, yeah there is uh, there is um you can make the case that people in new york city still don't know how good a california orange can be uh because when it gets there it's not the same orange uh, i think a lot of people just sort of take refrigeration for granted and they assume that perishable food that they have in New York is, is not going to be as, um, there's going to be the same as they would have in California. But the closer you are to the point of production, uh, there's no question the better it's, the better it's going to taste. And I don't, it's not so much that I take a position on this, but what I want people who read the book to understand is that there is this infrastructure that most people have forgotten about so that they can appreciate is the best word I can think of, all the effort and all the history that it's taken to get food from California uh, to their table. Yeah, I think what people also, you you talk about this infrastructure, you know, a lot. It's obviously one of the stages of your, in the cold chain. It's part of the cold chain, but um, we mentioned warehouses earlier, but not even where, not even just warehouses, you know, that I, I said the refrigerated trucks, um, but the display cases in the supermarkets. Right. And supermarkets alone are a whole, you know, a whole invention that would not have existed without refrigeration. Actually, the uh, the first frozen food um, display cases in grocery stores didn't have lids on them. So what would happen is the boxes on the top would melt slightly, hmm. and that really hurt the reputation of frozen foods early on. One of the things they managed to do is realize the problem and bring down the cost of frozen display cases for grocery stores, and that's one of the things that made the, the, the mass consumption of frozen food possible, because people will say, oh, maybe it's not that bad. It wasn't as bad as it was when it started. Hmm. Yeah, indeed. Well, there's always room for improvement. <laughs> and, and if bigger is better on a, in refrigerator mode, I mean, I, I don't know if that's the route we have to necessarily take, but... It's not bad. It's not bad to unload all your groceries and have space on the shelf <laughs> rather than cramming things, getting those things getting lost in the back of the refrigerator that have been there for God knows how long, right? One of the themes of the book, one of the reasons it took me so long to write it is, is, is about three-quarters of the way in, I realized I had to make some sort of effort at being comparative. And so it's also worth appreciating that a lot of other countries don't go shopping only once a week. Uh, that in France or Italy, the refrigerators are much smaller, and they're not as willing to make sacrifices uh, for taste uh, for the sake of convenience. And that is sort of my, the sub-theme in the book is that 
you know, Americans refrigeration crazy are a little refrigeration crazy, and that's one of the things that make us unique. Yes, indeed. At, living in the city, of course, you, one can go shopping every day if you're close to a, you know, food markets and and um, you live in one of these, as I said earlier at the top of the show, sprawling suburban areas where um, they're not food deserts um, because they do have cars and access to large supermarkets, but not some place where you could walk. Uh, to yep. get your food, and every day might be, a, you know, a bit of a chore to get there. But um, indeed, it's it's something that America has embraced, and then some. Well, Jonathan, I I have found the book really fascinating on more than more than one level, more than just the cold level. <laughs> and I thank you so much for sharing your information with me today on a taste of the past, and uh, and look forward to more interesting information coming out from you. Thank you so much for having me. And I want to remind everyone you've been listening to a taste of the past on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.